0: Welcome to the Confidence Circle, a podcast dedicated to bringing people closer that face daily life challenges through mental health issues and traumatic events. I'm your host, Alicia Ohana. When I was 23 years old, I competed for the title of Miss Canada Petite. A part of our training was to have a confidence circle where all the girls were encouraged to open up about something traumatic or something heavy on their mind. Every single girl had problems. This was a group of like 80 girls, whether it was depression, a parent with an illness, an eating disorder, or an abusive relationship. It helped us bond to each other. We cried for each other and consoled each other, and we all realized that we weren't alone. It heavily impacted me, and I was blessed to have been a trainer with the organization and lead a circle the following year. When I came back from the pageant, I had a few circles here and it was amazing. I met amazing people. However, it was hard to find safe spaces and times that worked for everyone. I've wanted to do this podcast for two years and I finally found the courage to start. I'll start with my journey. This way you can get to know a little bit about me and some of my life experiences that really affected me and taught me about people. Just to let you know, I am not a doctor. I am no way um, suggesting treatments or medications that you should try or anything. This is solely based on my experience as a human being and my opinion. I am not um, suggesting anything for other people. Okay, so I'm just going to start. I have a few stories to share with you. So listen along. From the age of 7 to 22, I struggled with anxiety and depression um, even though I had what people would consider a perfect childhood, my mind was a constant hurricane of thoughts surrounding one theme. What if? It was the biggest, scariest thought I have. I was terrified of life, of opportunities, of not knowing what would happen tomorrow. I used to cry myself to sleep because I'd convince myself that something bad would happen, like an earthquake or my worst fear, my family suffering or passing. I didn't enjoy events. I was always in my head and I didn't understand why people were so happy when the possibility of so many bad things could happen. I always put on a strong face. My parents had a salon and I was all smiles and laughs when I was with people, but when I was alone, it was torture. My mind was, it's the way that I think, it's so strange. It's like, I just... I don't think in words it's almost like when my mind gets hold of me I see I see it in a movie form and I see what's going to happen to me and I see the torture and I feel the pain and it's so real for me that it brings tears to my eyes sometimes and it really takes control of me and I'm getting better with it now and I don't suffer from that as much as I used to but I would literally zone out and it's like a movie of horror playing in my mind about my life and I don't know if that happens to many people but It's very consuming and it just completely drained my energy. Um, I I always put on a strong face and my family isn't one to really talk about depression. They're very strong people. They were immigrants. They came from nothing. They came to nothing, to Canada, to only pursue opportunity. There was no time to be depressed because that would have been a waste of time and money. So when I would open up to them and tell them about my fears and concerns, they'd be brushed off. Alicia, that will never happen. Enjoy your life. You have nothing to worry about. We provide everything for you. But my mind was just a whole other battlefield. I remember being 15 and having a realization. I had fear about many things that never happened. My mind constantly abused itself with terrible thoughts, and all it did was take my energy. I was crying over nothing, and it was consuming me as a person. The worries you've had forever never came true, Alicia. Why are you sad? I would ask myself. It was just a feeling that I had, and none of my friends seemed to be experiencing it, so... Everyone seemed so happy and content with their life and they'd go and like do things together and I could just never get on that same boat because I had so much fear. Uh, It wasn't until I was 17 years old and I went to Israel to see my family. So I have a huge family in Israel. I have 19 aunts and uncles in total and 70 direct cousins. In Canada, I just have my two sisters and my parents. The food, the culture, the lifestyle, the weather, it was all so amazing and it was nothing like Canada. When I came back, I found myself in a huge depression. I was working six days a week, twelve hours a day, there was no partying, there was no family. It was you wake up, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you make money, you come back home, and you go to sleep it it's it 's crazy and it 's a lot of uh, canadian people 's reality here I find I lost thirty pounds in a few months i wouldn 't eat and wouldn 't do my makeup. When people would say hi to me, I'd burst into tears because I felt completely alone and felt like the Canadian lifestyle honestly wasn't a life. I think this is something that many immigrants or Canadian born first generation citizens experience. My parents took me to a doctor and they ran scans on my stomach. Nothing was wrong. I knew it was mental, but I didn't know how to take care of my thoughts. I tried looking up therapists on my own. The rates were crazy. I was 17 years old. I couldn't afford treatment on my own. And my parents didn't believe there was anything wrong with me. And I just felt so stuck. I remember just working in the salon and I'd go and sit in the bathroom and I'd cry. I would just break down and cry because I didn't know what to do. Um, There used to be like a poster in the bathroom of our client who was a... Uh, she was like an art therapist, and I often thought about calling her, but I just know that my family wouldn't approve, and I was so scared of being shamed that I, I didn't ask for help. So one day, a client came into the salon with a few printouts, and it was called How to Change Your Thinking Patterns. And I started reading it, and my mind was absorbing everything, and it addressed a lot of my thoughts. I can't remember the exact points, but they were along the lines of this. It was when you have a negative spiraling thought, analyze it. What is happening in the world around you right now? What ifs are a spiral of bad thoughts. And it's an introduction to an endless, endless cycle. When you have a bad thought, stop it right away and ask yourself, is this reality? Is it happening now? Is it affecting me? My answers to everything were no. And I realized oh my god, what am I doing? I need to stop stop asking myself what if and go this is. This is my reality. This is where I'm living. I'm so lucky my parents are alive. I'm so lucky they're healthy and really count my blessings. Number two was realize what triggered you and make a mental note and stay away from those triggers and to realize your reality and what is happening right now always, always, always count your blessings. There's always something to be grateful for. And of course, there's always something you can change. But I think we really do need to count our blessings, especially in the world of today. Another thing was I always had this like tenseness in my body. And it was because I honestly didn't know how to breathe. I, I remember having a client, she was like a yoga instructor. And she's like, when you learn how to breathe, it will help you with your thoughts. And so I actually started being conscious of my posture and also my breath and dragging in slowly and out through my stomach and focusing on breathing instead of thinking. Um, Also, one thing that was on that list also was if it's a serious problem, seek help right away. Uh, If I had questions for a doctor, if I had something to ask my parents that seemed so ominous um, that I would think about it for a few days was to just go and take care of it right away. So I actually started doing that. This list affected me from that day forward to this day. I still don't think the client knows how much she helped me. Well, I think she did know because when she asked me how I was, I I burst into tears and eventually I did get better and I, I got back to normal and I finally could control my thought process. So whenever I started thinking about a what if situation, I dissected the thought and broke it down into nothing. I started writing all of my fears down and breaking them all up. I started feeling happier because my thoughts weren't spiraling out of control. When I did have a serious problem, I took care of it right away instead of worrying about it and being scared to confront it. I could finally have positive, healthy thoughts. And I started to realize that I was appreciating the moment and I was actually appreciating life and I felt more my age um, so this is a, just a little story like a year later uh, so I was 18 years old I wanted to go to school and my father thought it would be a good idea to go into healthcare, and I agreed because I love talking to older people I love being around them I love the stories I love they're just so cute and they come from generations of wars and struggle and there's just so much wisdom there I honestly believe that elderly people are the foundation of society and they get pushed into elderly homes where they just get neglected and they never get heard. And especially the women, like they've gone through so much oppression and struggling through that and raising families. And so many of those stories we never get to hear. And I think it would be amazing to actually get to know our elderly community a little bit more. So I was very, very excited to go work in an elderly home. Um, and in the salon, I was raised by a bunch of older people that I considered family. So it was amazing. The course taught me all about all kinds of illnesses and how to intervene in a crisis. It taught me how to wash and care for another human being. And it was the most beautiful experience of my life. One that I think everyone should have. Um, I'll tell you about one of my patients. So this really affected me. He was a man in his 30s. He was the youngest person that I took care of. And it was in a public living space for people confined to wheelchairs and dealing with health issues like Parkinson's, ALS, and cerebral palsy. So these are all um, conditions that affect movement, but not necessarily the mind. So these, a lot of the patients that I took care of in that building were very, very, very smart, very brilliant, and they just were confined to a wheelchair. So they needed a bit of help, but they were still independent um in this man's case he was a quadriplegic which meant that from the neck below he had no ability to move he was driving his car really fast and hit a pole and his car actually wrapped around the pole and he completely lost movement and feeling all over his body he was severely depressed of course like being that young and having your life essentially physically end before you is very traumatic um he would drink numerous beers a day and smoke countless cigarettes. I would put the cigarette in his mouth and he would have a candle on the table and light it with the candle with his head. So the first day, I went in to wash him and clean and cook and he thanked me and he was very kind and soft spoken. It was one of my first days uh in a unit helping and I left around 8 p.m. after putting him in bed. The next morning, when I came back around 9 a.m. to wake him up, he was wide awake and in an extremely bad mood. You left the light on, he said, and I just stood there and apologized. He looked at me and said, do you have any idea what it's like to have the light on and not be able to move and turn it off? It's enough to drive somebody insane. You take it for granted because you can fix this problem so easily. But for me, I need someone else to do it. So I was up all night. Oh my god. Like, I felt so guilty and horrible. I helped him with his task that day and left so ashamed. And I cried so hard. I didn't want to go back. I realized that I really did take those little things for granted and felt like a horrible caregiver because... I did not put myself in that person's shoes and it really taught me a lesson and taught me to appreciate the little things in life. That night I went home and when I turned the light off, I started crying because I can choose when the lights go on and off and I have that option and that was something that really hit me hard. So it really put me into perspective. It taught me a lesson and taught me to appreciate the little things in life because some people don't have the simplest pleasure of touch or movement. I did go back the next day and I took care of him for two weeks before the end of my course. He blessed me with awareness and compassion and taught me that I had a lot to be grateful for. So that's one of the stories that really affected me and really helped shape me as a person because at at that age, I didn't have much compassion for others. I was so wrapped up in my own anxiety that I didn't know that a lot of other people go through that. So he taught me a lot that day. My next practicum and my favorite ward was the dementia ward. So, essentially, 90 year olds who believed they were 20 and 30 and just they were in different realities of life. And it was very interesting because they had such innocence and they were so beautiful and they couldn't remember things, but they felt energy. And if they felt a good vibe from you, they were good to you and they did remember you. So, My second resident was in dementia care and when I met him, he introduced himself to me as the Prime Minister of Canada and always held like a very serious tone. So I had the pleasure of taking care of him for a week before his health started declining. I fed him dinner and he seemed fine. However, the head nurse told me that his health was not okay. And the next day I came into work and she actually asked me to get things to prepare his body. And I was shocked. His health was declining so fast and I'd never seen anyone in that stage of life. Like I was still in school. I I didn't know that I had to do that. So... I was so scared of death and I wasn't keen on going in but of course I had to and a little bit of me was interested as well because I was never exposed to that. So I remember gathering my towels and my soapy bucket full of water and I entered his room and the curtains were drawn shut and the lights were off and The nurse stood on his right side and I stood on his left and we helped each other wash him softly from head to toe with warm soapy water and his body was so heavy and firm it felt like I was touching a mannequin and like I I fed him the night before and he was fine It it was just unbelievable to me. Um, before every touch, we stated what we would do. So we'd say, Mr. So-and-so, I'm just going to lift your arm and I'm going to wash you. And it was so respectful and peaceful. It was one of the most peaceful moments of my life. And I'd always been scared of death. And at that moment, I overcame it. I thought, to this day, I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I worked at a funeral home last year, actually. And it is the most Relaxing peaceful place I don't know how death got such a bad rap and bad energy around it but it's it's a beautiful experience in a weird way I know it's a taboo topic but it was really incredible um, this course made me so sensitive to other people and their needs and made me a very compassionate person. Um, it really helped me overcome a lot of fears because I met people who were facing death and serious illnesses, who had amazing personalities and stories, and despite of their illness, they lived on in happiness. So it was so inspiring, and I've, I have many other stories which we will get into further along in different episodes, but these two made me realize a lot about life, and I overcame a lot of fears through this course, so I was very, very grateful for that now i want to share something extremely personal with you um this is the scariest thing the scariest year and the most eye-opening year which was scary because I kind of manifested it and I remember I was 22 years old and I remember I was on my kitchen floor and I was like so exhausted I was working really long days 6 days a week I didn't have time for friends I didn't have time for going out and I was like I am 22 this isn't a life like I find when you ask God out of out of your soul he listens and he answers and he's always listened to me and I'm really blessed But I wish to be independent that year. I wish to go compete in pageants. I wish to model that year. Everything that I wanted to do, I wanted it for that year. I just wanted independence. And I sure as hell got it that year. And when you pray, you have to be so specific and so careful. Because the way that it comes around can be so traumatic. So be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Be very specific in what you want. And make sure that you want it. Because... The creator, God, Allah, whoever you believe in, has a plan for you and you just don't know how it's going to come along. So, when I was 22 years old, the scariest biggest fear came true. My father was always a very cautious man, always the provider for the family and always made sure things were in order so our family business salon operated smoothly. He was strong and loving and he's the best father ever. To this day I am blessed with a beautiful male figure in my life and i'm very grateful uh, in 2015 he turned 68 and i noticed a shift in energy with our family in the salon everybody commented like wow what an amazing energy when they walked in and they'd feel feeling amazing but that year the energy didn't feel so great and something fell off Things were breaking around the house. We had a robbery in the salon. The car broke down. The food would go bad so fast. Like, we'd buy a gallon of milk, and in two days, it'd be full of fungus. It was the weirdest string of events. My father started drastically losing weight. In four months, he went from 175 to 130 pounds. Now, when you're around somebody, you don't notice, but our clients noticed, and they kept asking, Is he okay? Is he okay? And he went to the doctor and he found out that he was diagnosed with diabetes. So in my family, it's extremely serious. His sister passed away from it. And his father had also severe diabetes at the time of his passing. Um, so, and he was 68 years old. He was the exact same age as my father. So my father was never sick, knock on wood. And I think to him, it was, it was essentially a death sentence just because of what his sister and and father went through Um They put him on metformin, it's a medication, and his mental health started to decline really fast. He was having these weird thoughts that we were losing money and that we were being watched. My dad was always cautious and we just thought that he was being overdramatic and really sensitive because he was worried about his health, so... I went out one day with my friends and my older sister contacted me to come home because something was wrong with our father and I ran home and he claimed we absolutely had no money and the house was gone and we were kind of shocked but we also kind of believed him because my father handled the finances and everything. We had no idea what was going on inside the account. So I asked my mother if this was true and she didn't answer because she didn't know. So we went to the bank, we checked the bank statements and nothing seemed wrong. The money was there. The house was fine. Everything was okay. All the things that he was talking about weren't true. And we were so confused. But he kept insisting and we just kept reassuring him. He started not taking his medication. And I remember, oh God, I remember this one night. I was trying to force him to take them. And he grabbed both of my arms and he was like so strong. And I don't know how because he was like so weak and skinny at the time and he just looked me in the eye and just screamed in my face he did not want to take his medication and I was shocked because my father was also always like kind and gentle and never screamed and I I remember thinking something's really really wrong um He would go and sit on the stairs and hold his head for hours every day. He couldn't sleep. He would wake up in the middle of the night with night terrors and come into my room, shaking me, claiming they were watching. Uh, Like, who's they, I would ask. And he just screamed back, they. I would try to put him back into his bed and he claimed he soiled himself and he was unclean, even though he wasn't. Like, we went as far as buying him diapers, even though he wasn't having a problem with incontinence. Uh, He would grab the car keys and threaten to drive somewhere and that night I realized he needed to go to the hospital but he refused. He would not get into the car and my mother didn't want me to take him either. I got to the point where I would ask him what day it was and he wouldn't know. He was completely just losing his mind and we were at a loss for words and in in our community and in their generation mental illness isn't commonly talked about so it was very hard to get him into the hospital Uh, I frantically started looking for a family doctor because we didn't have one and he said he wasn't seeing patients so I found him on Facebook actually and I sent him a message I was sending a whole bunch of people messages and I begged him and he told me to come in the next two days so it was a fight to get my father into the car I felt so bad about this but I had to convince him that his blood sugar was out of control and if that we didn't go he could possibly die So he only then agreed to get into the car and the doctor welcomed him in and started asking my father questions and my father couldn't answer any of them. It was questions that weren't registering. He asked him what color his shirt was and he couldn't answer what day of the week it was and he couldn't answer. It just it was unbelievable to see this decline in my father. Uh, He put a pen and paper in front of my father and started asking questions that seemed familiar from school. And it was something called a sage test. So this test just asks questions like they ask to connect two circles together. And oftentimes people with dementia don't have a sense of space or really measurement and they can't connect the circles. And this was something my father couldn't do. And there were other things that my father couldn't do as well. And I started crying. I remember just sitting there and I, I told the doctor, I'm like, my father doesn't have dementia. I have worked in the wards. This is so much worse. And he told me that dementia took all kinds of forms and to let him please complete the test. And at the end of the test, he concluded that my father had dementia. He said to me in these words, exactly. Your father has a house, a family and a business. How could he be depressed? He has everything, and I just felt like someone slapped me. I felt so misunderstood, and my father had no clue what was happening, and everything in my body told me it wasn 't true and I took him home and the next day, I called the mental helpline, and the only suggestion that they had for me was to take him to the doctor i just I wanted to throw my phone at the wall i There is nothing they can do. He told me, ma'am, I'm sorry, I'm just a volunteer. You need to take him to the doctor. And I said, you're the mental helpline. You have people calling you that need help right away. What do you mean go to a doctor? And he just couldn't help me. And I broke down and I started sobbing. And I felt so out of options. And my father was getting increasingly more difficult. So I told my mom, that's it. Like, I'm taking him to the hospital. I'm taking him to the emergency room. This needs to be dealt with now because this is a huge problem. My mother was completely against it. Uh, I couldn't take it anymore. At 4 p.m. that day, I forced him into our car. And I took him to the Vancouver emergency room. And we didn't see a doctor until 8 p.m. And it was such a struggle to keep my father in the emergency room because he was so anxious. So, eventually, the doctor came out. They took my father into a room. tested his blood sugar. Everything seemed fine. But I asked to speak to a social worker. And I let them know about the thoughts that he was having and the irregular activity. Um, so... They brought me into a room and questioned me and then they questioned him and we were interviewed by so many different doctors and medical personnel. It was past midnight at that point and we were exhausted and we were left with no answers Um, A doctor finally called me into the room with my father and said that he should be in the mental ward for evaluation and treatment, and I remember just feeling a sense of relief and finally felt like I was being listened to, and the doctor told me that he needed to be certified, which meant he wasn't allowed to leave the hospital, and if we tried to remove him, the police would get involved. My father was oddly happy. Um for some reason we gave him a kiss and told him we'd come back in the morning and he was happy to just he threw out his pants his shoes like he believed he was actually really dirty which wasn't true so fast forward um he had to wait in the emergency room for a few days on a bed on a gurney in the hallway and it took about two days to get him into the actual ward um when we walked into the ward. It was awful. It was full of patience and it was so bare. They were just beds. They were just tables. It was so bare and they wore this horrible mint green outfit and had nothing. The food was awful. The beds were thin and it was a very rough atmosphere full of anxious people and nobody was really talking to each other. Everybody kind of kept to themselves. And we went home that night, and I remember just crying for hours. The guilt that I felt for certifying him was painful. Um, The conditions that he stayed in, that ward, it was insane. For two long months, he was in that ward, and every day, I just felt so much guilt. It was extremely hard, and it was hard for him as well, because he couldn't see us, and to my father, family was everything. Um, So... Let me just gather my bearings here. <laughs> um. Uh so they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him after the two months his blood tests were all normal his brain scans were normal but he wasn't responding to antidepressants he started putting on weight and his mood was improving but the delusions were still at full force so they decided to move him into a building called east one he'd be allowed to go outside with a chaperone and further his treatment there and this building was disgusting and dark and depressing it was way worse than the first ward and they actually tore it down this year thank god um I would get calls from the head nurse telling me to come down and feed him because he was refusing to eat because apparently the food was poisoned and just complaints like that. So I used to cook every day, feed him lunch and dinner and... It went from there. After a week, we received a call from a social worker who sat us down and told us he wasn't responding to the pills or to the treatment, and the next course of action would be shock therapy. And I thought it wasn't around anymore, but the social worker assured us that 90% of effective treatment was delivered by shock therapy instead of with medication. They showed us a video, and it was honestly horrifying and my father said absolutely no my father was in a bad place and my mother was now depressed she was really really not herself she lost a whole bunch of weight her hair was thinning she was pacing back and forth and my mom is a firecracker so it was very 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 hard to see um my Mother missed my father and was overall stressed about the entire situation. But we talked to a lot of health professionals and they reassured us that it was safe and it was the most effective, especially if the pills weren't working. So what we did was we decided to take power of attorney and override his decision because we wanted him back and we wanted him healthy. Three months in a hospital is too long. So my father started the next week. And the first treatment came around and we instantly noticed an improvement in his behavior. He was responding to questions and even managed to smile for the first time in months. The new treatment, the next treatment, I got a call from my father from inside the hospital. And he warned me that he was being watched and the house is gone and my heart broke he was so good after the first treatment and now it was going back to the psychotic part and I called the doctor and they said it was normal and that he had to complete all 13 treatments to have the full effect so we continued And it was honestly amazing. After the 13 treatments, we had our father back, he was joking around, he was eating, he was talking to the other residents. And let me tell you, it was so beautiful. Like the way the residents treated my father, he was one of the oldest people there. And they were beautiful, beautiful people in that hospital. I still talk to some of them this day, and they're all doing better. And they're all working. And it's really, really beautiful. And It ended up being a really beautiful atmosphere because everybody was getting better together. And I remember the day that my dad left, this man gave my dad like a funky pair of socks and my dad was like, okay, this is so weird. Like, I don't know you, but they gave each other a hug and they parted and they were so happy to leave and so happy to be happy again. And it was beautiful. Um, so on May 23rd, 2016, my father was discharged from East One and it was great. His confidence was a little shattered and his personality was different, but he was coming back to himself. They had him on Cetralin, which is an antipsychotic drug after. And we honestly ran into a few problems at home with it. He was lacking energy big time. At, at one point, he, I remember him cutting a honeydew in the kitchen and I was smiling at him. And all of a sudden he smiled back and his eyes just glazed over and he fell backwards and I just ran to catch him and thank God he was fine. But those medications are extremely numbing and it did take his personality away in a sense. So it was very, very hard. The medications were very, very intense. Um... So his personality was different, but he was coming back to normal. Uh, our home really felt whole again. It was great to have him back, but our business was falling apart. Clients that we had for 17 years didn't want to come in anymore because it was sad. It was. I remember delivering figs to a client and she said, 17 years. She was a client for 17 years and she told me to my face, it is so depressing to come and see your family. I just can't come in anymore. And I, re- I, I just... I couldn't believe it. I was like, in the time of need, in the time where we needed so much support, people were blatantly to our face, shutting their door, literally. Shutting their door and being like, sorry, I can't be there for you. And a lot of people don't understand this, but like your hairdressers that you go to, the people that you go to and you confide in, like you become a part of our life. And we appreciate you. You put bread on our table. But if somebody's going through a tough time, be there that's all you can really do is listen and just offer a shoulder but never ever shut the door on somebody's face it's horrible so people who we considered family turned their back on my family and it hurt we came to realize that people weren't supportive and weren't there and at that moment i honestly started hating people for judging my father for what he went through for a 16-year-old man, never been sick, always been strong, to go through a depression and have people turn your back on him was insulting. I didn't want to be in the salon anymore. My family was so sick of the inquiring guys that didn't offer help and only judged us. It's funny because people who we thought didn't care about us were the most helpful ones. You never know who your friends are treatment outside of the hospital was non-existent let me tell you um the system is broken There's a reason why they say it's a revolving door and a lot of the people that I met inside the ward have been there multiple times because once you leave the hospital, there is no treatment. You can't go in for shock therapy while you lead your regular life. You have to admit yourself into the hospital and it's a horrible, horrible way of getting treated because nobody wants to sit in a hospital for two weeks while they are getting treated, especially in a place that's not ideal and not comforting and warm. Um... So I tried calling the social worker a few times regarding medications and my father fainting and we never got an answer back. If my father hadn't had his family, he would have ended up dead. Throughout his stay at the hospital, we visited every day. A lot of people didn't have one visitor throughout the duration. We started making friends with everyone and including them with our visit with our father. Throughout this whole situation, I realized, I really realized that my worst fear came true. And it was amazing that yes it was hard and I cried but the world didn't stop and it didn't crumble beneath my feet because my father got sick and since that experience I haven't experienced serious anxiety or depression and I feel that we go through certain situations for a reason and we learn from every person and experience. Thank God my father is way better now and enjoys every day. It was a huge wake-up call for my family who worked six days a week for over 12, 12 hours away for 17 years. Who left their family in Israel. Who left everything behind to make a better future for their children. And um, they ended up obviously getting sick and we lost the salon. We chose to close it, but um, they ended up earning life. They end up now, they go on vacation every year to go see their brothers and sisters. They do things they love to do. They eat meals together. They're much happier. And I feel like God really answered my prayers and gave my parents freedom. And it took a traumatic experience, but it really liberated my family from working so hard. So I'm thankful for that. Um, That's a little bit about my life. That's the story. And... I'm blessed to know a lot of people that have gone through mental illness. The reason why I decided to start this in the new year is that on December 7th, this past December, I found out that I lost my very good friend Josie to mental illness. And it's very hard. It was a very hard thing for me. And nobody, nobody should have to go through their thoughts alone. Please talk to somebody, get to know a friend. Call someone. You are not alone. So many people are experiencing the same things as you. And you are strong. You have it in you. Use what you have. My anxiety and depression was so... Like It took control of me when I was younger, but I've learned to take the power out of it. It prepared me for so much because I was overthinking and I took power over it. And now if I get anxiety, I use it as motivation to go do what I need to do to take care of any problems because I find that when you're hit with anxiety or depression, it means you're not happy with something that you're doing in your life and use that and make a change and go for it because you can do it. Like I believe in this. I believe in this. If you're someone that deals with schizophrenia, with, with psychosis, with seeing things that aren't there, know that you're not alone. I personally believe that... This isn't an illness. This isn't crazy. This is a reality. How can whole wards of people be seeing and feeling the same fears and things? This is a parallel dimension. This is something that exists out there that we need to embrace instead of turn off and numb with medication. We need to be there for each other. We need to share stories because the more that we know and the more we can relate to each other, the more we can understand and help each other and really use each other to bond as a community. I find that I'm most comfortable talking to people who have battled with mental health because they're so self aware and unashamed and accepting of other people. And there's no shame in getting help and talking about your battle. If you feel like sharing your story, please leave a comment. I'm looking for people to interview about their battle with mental health and experiences that have shaped who they are and their life. Um, I also encourage you, please, this is like a new podcast, to leave a rating and a comment. If you'd like to talk to me or be featured on the show, you can DM me through my Instagram page at the Alicia Ohana and I would love to record your story and I would love to meet you. If you choose to stay anonymous, that is totally fine. Thank you for listening. I wish you peace of mind and fruitful thoughts and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and carry on with confidence and know that you're being thought of. Thank you.